There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to The Moon Underwater. It is I, your landlord, uh, John Robbins, and with me, the lovely Robin Allender, the regular here at The Moon Underwater. And we are midway through creating Will Boyd's Dream Pub. Will's book, The Romantic, is out now. We've been discussing it in part one. It's a whole life novel following Cashel Greville Ross through the Battle of Waterloo, his engagement with uh, the Romantic Poets, and that has given inspiration to uh, the pub quiz. So, Robin, let's take people off those Keatsian tenterhooks. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yes, this week's pub quiz was about romantic poetry and Britpop, how one influenced the other. Um, so do you want me to do the big six romantic poets for our listeners, or should, or should we just go through it, John? What do you think? Well, I think it's too late now, because too late now. you didn't do it when you asked the question. So. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So question one was, Suede's song, Heroine, with an E, uh, begins with the line, She walks in beauty like the night. And from which romantic poet was this line borrowed, John? Oh, don't ask me first. I was just going to copy what Will said. <laughs> okay. I'll say Byron. Okay. I thought it was Keats, but that I know. Uh, but it's um, I genuinely don't know, know the answer to that. So I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to go Shelley. It is Byron. Yeah. John's John's won it. Yeah. It's from the lyric, which is called "She Walks in Beauty." She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. The suede song goes: "She walks in beauty like the night, discarding her clothes in the plastic flowers." Ooh. Very different, and. Probably a bit worse, but I do like Suede. But so, question two: History by the Verve, which is a great song actually, begins with the lines: "I wander lonely streets behind where the old Thames does flow, and in every face I meet reminds me of what I have run for." So, John, what do you think to that one? Well, I think that's based on Wordsworth, but I don't think it's. It's. I mean, it's obviously not verbatim. Will, what do you think? I had that down as Wordsworth as well. Really, that that's Blake. It's Blake from London. In Songs of Experience. Huh. Is he a romantic poet? Good question. <laughs> your starter for ten, <laughs> Robin. <laughs> I'd say he is one of the big six, but he is a lot older. Yes, I, I would have gone, you know, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey, Keats, Shelley, uh, Byron as the big six. But th- wow. There you and go. And what about, what about uh, Chatterton? I've recently been reading about uh, because he features in a, well... The painting of his death features in a Stella Gibbons novel I'm reading. And uh, reading about him was fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely nuts. Oh, yeah. yeah he's, he, was a, he was a, what do you call fraud Fraudster, uh, yes. Yeah. Hoaxer, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, William Blake, seminal figure in the history of poetry and visual art of the Romantic Age. Not my words, the words of Wikipedia. <laughs> the Romantic uh, Age, but it doesn't say he's a Romantic poet. Well, yes. but very well done if you got that at home. William Blake there influencing Richard Ashcroft. The the original Blake is I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. That's that's quite like um sort of not not dissimilar to the wasteland kind of vibe. Yes. Is, yeah. The crowd flowed over London Bridge. Yeah. It's beautiful. The songs of experience is, is fantastic. Well and innocence. Yes. And last one was Tender is the Night, which is uh the Blur song Tender, which is a reference to the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, but where did that title come from, John? Ask Will first. Well, that that is Keats, isn't it? Uh, um, I, I, I I've got two wrong so far, so I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's Keats. John, what are you saying? I'm also saying Keats, and I'm also going to say it's 
it might be a good job you never finished that for the thesis, Will. <laughs> but you just saying Keats because Will said Keats. Oh, what does that say on my bit of paper? It does. It does say Keats. Yeah, yeah. It is Keats is from Ode to a Nightingale. Tender is the night, and happily the Queen Moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. So, John, you you won two one. Yeah. extraordinary. <laughs> I never really dealt with the romantics because we did them at like. Uh, we did them at, I think, A-level or maybe even GCSE. And I just, I think similar to like Gatsby, your capacity to understand loss as mm. a teenager, you sort of think that you you know it, but I don't think you do actually know enough about loss as a, as a sort of generic teen uh, to sort of get your head around the romantics, but I guess that they teach them to teenagers because they were quite. They in in some respects they're quite a teenage movement. Yeah, I mean Keats was uh, twenty six when he died. Shelley was twenty nine. You know Byron, I think was thirty two, thirty three. So they all the the late romantics died uh, very young. You know when you think about it. Um, but I think it's yes, it's true. I think that in a way, I, I think you should teach uh, these poets in the context of their lives, not just give people poems to read, because suddenly you understand, you know, what John Keats, Cockney poet, you know, uh, not well educated, um, but a brilliant, you know, natural talent. And the poems that he wrote were, came out of his life's experience. If you don't know his life's experience, you're sort of missing half of the, of the of the, of the wonder and the mystery of them. I remember yeah. doing Kubla Khan uh, for GCSE, and just basically thinking, "Oh, it's just a mad dream someone's written down." He, he was probably <laughs> stoned on laudanum when he wrote yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that a lot of them have kind of, as I've got older, like maybe like what John's saying as well. I've, and particularly Blake, I'm reading a really good Blake book about Blake by John Higgs at the moment, and I think it's the first time he's met. He sort of made it understandable to me I think because I was just mystified by him when I, we did him at university yeah no I think it's um you know I think once if you have a sense of the personality I mean Blake was you know close to barking mad I think and so I think if you have a sense of the personality of the writer then you look at the poetry and and respond to it differently and maybe understand it better you know do you but, think uh, that's gone too far the other way in terms of modern writers uh, especially sort of um, like 20th century poets, do you think we, we take into account too much of their life? I, I watched a, there's a documentary about the Wasteland on iPlayer at the moment, and it's so much about sort of focused on this love affair that Elliot had with uh, sort of almost throughout his whole life that you sort of finish watching it thinking, I'd actually like to have heard more of the poem it can be overemphasized, and I think that's I, I know the documentary you're referring to. It's Emily Hales, this woman that he he wrote to all his life. I don't think they ever had an affair, but they were kind of lovers in that slightly chaste sense. But um, you know, it's that's not the the story of the wasteland, you know. Um, and um, but I think that a little bit of information about the author's life and the author's nature actually helps you understand the work that that, that was a very unfashionable view uh, in the you know post-war um, it was only the words on the page that you were meant to study but I, I just think that's wrong you know you just get more from the literature if you know something about the writer yeah I think I like particularly living where I am I get the bus past Peckham Rye every morning and I think that's that's where Blake saw angels in the trees, and I, you know, so it's sort of nice to associate it with actual places where you go. And Blake went on this long walk to South London, and and uh, Muriel Spark wrote the Ballad of Peckham Rye, yeah, which is a wonderful, wonderful novel. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, what's the? Um, oh yeah, Blake went on this walk through South London. He said he found a charming village called Camberwell which <laughs> <laughs> is so great yeah but yeah Ballad of Peckham Rye yeah it's brilliant that, that, that's great some great pubs mentioned in that yeah well we return to Will's dream pub so far on draft 
he has Newcastle Brown Ale, uh, Cronenberg. I will do the French for me, Will. Uh, says soixante quatre, sixteen sixty four. Says soixante quatre. Evening Land Pinot Noir, La Source, the expensive choice, but also the more reasonable Craggy Range uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, we head towards spirits, and I think spirits are much more in the sort of realm of some of the characters in your novels, especially in Any Human Heart. There's cocktails. And there's the drinking of gin and whiskey and spirits are very much a sort of 20s to, to sort of 50s drink. Are you, are you much of a spirit drinker? Um, t- not particularly. I mean, I, it's interesting you, you say it because I, you know, when my parents, you know, I grew up in Africa and my parents would drink gin at lunchtime and whiskey in the evening. You know, not to excess, I'm glad to say, but there are a couple of gin and tonics. My father used to drink pink gins. He's a doctor, but in the evening he'd have whiskey and water, and, and wine was only drunk with a meal. But even then, it was kind of indifferent wine. So the society was very booze spirit driven in those days. And um, uh, when you look at the drinking history of people or drinking history of of writers, uh, take Evelyn War for example, one of my uh, one of the writers I'm fascinated by, War was also, a, you could say, a, a functioning alcoholic. Um, he would start drinking gin and orange squash at 10.30 in the morning. Must be one of the most disgu- disgusting drinks you can imagine. That's what you drink at the end of a house party when you run yeah, out of everything else. Exactly. In fact, I've drunk gin and orange squash in a house party. I've, I've, I've drunk gin and water in a house party. It's revolting. I remember trying a pink gin after reading, I think it was Slaves of Solitude or 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, the Patrick Hamilton books. And they're always talking about pink gins. And then you look into it and it's just it's just gin with it's Angostura bitters, isn't it? And, and soda water. So it's right. A, so oh, it's, it's, that's yeah. the thing I missed so it's, out. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very dry. You know, and it's uh, basically again a, a way of getting as much gin down your throat without adulterating it too much. <laughs> There's also a, a theme in in those sort of great 30s and 40s novels. There's a theme of drinking on an empty stomach. There's often quite a lot of discussion about you know having a sandwich. Uh, and the women, the female characters especially, are often getting lightheaded because they've not really eaten anything. And it's it's quite... Um, to read that sort of passage where, I think it's Slaves of Solitude, where the, the main character, the female character, is in a pub having these pink gins and all she's had is like half a sandwich that she's been served in the pub. And you can almost feel your body (laughs) sort of just revolting at the idea Mm. of it. But they, they didn't, they often didn't eat a lot. Yeah, they couldn't buy a packet of crisps. You know, no. so. <laughs> yeah, the lack of convenience food. I often wonder what Sherlock Holmes would make of Pratt. <laughs> yes, he says. Such a great yes. sentence. <laughs> if you walk to Victorian London, I guarantee the one of the biggest differences, apart from all the myriad of differences, you wouldn't see people eating on the go. I thought you were going to say was that there's no Pratt. <laughs> well, well, it, there isn't, and. It, I think it would have been very strange for Sherlock, if I could call him by his first name, to see people sort of eating a sandwich as they walk. It yes. would feel, I think, pretty sort of bad form. Yes, I think. I mean, there was, there was convenience food. You know, you could buy buy pies off a pie seller, but it was not exactly, um, you know, uh, thought through. Uh, so it, there, there were ways of, of you know, eating on the go, but... Um, Usually you, you went into a, a chop house and had a proper meal or um, and, um, and food was copious and pretty cheap. There was no snacking, as it were, in the 19th century. Yes, that's the absolute heart of it. There's, there's no snacking. There's a lovely bit in, in, in the Romantic that I, I really liked, which is just a, such a great kind of observation about 19th century London. I, I think they all arrive in, on a coach from somewhere... They have to get to central London from wherever they've landed. And so they all have to walk together, all the passengers on the coach, as a way of, like, avoiding being robbed 
and just because of the lack of public transport. I thought that was so interesting. Yes, I mean, it's true. It's, they've come from Oxford to London, and the coach was only meant to take six hours, but it took eight hours. Um, and they arrive, and, and at that time, I think we're early 1820s, the only gas-lit street, or very few gas-lit streets in London, was Fleet Street was one of them. But when you left the gas-lit streets, you went into a you know, city of total darkness, and there were, you know, feral children and footpads and, and robbers waiting for you. So what you did when you got off the coach, you shouted, who's going west or who's going south? And you, <laughs> and you went a little gang, you know, um, to try and protect yourself. Because when you went off the lit streets, you were a, a target. And there, there, were, there was primitive street lighting, oil lights at the corner of some streets. But when you try to imagine Victorian city or the kind of early Victorian city, you know, you had no illumination yourself unless you were carrying a lantern or something like that. But so just thinking, you're doing the thought experiment of imagining walking through London in a blackout or like being in the Blitz or something like that. And of course, um, bad people took advantage of that. How do you manage the, the balance of research and writing? Because a novel like The Romantic there's so much of it. You you must have to Google so much and read so much. But are you then able to sort of get into your flow? Or do you reach a point... There's a, there's a great bit in it where Cashel is starting to sort of basically date a, a woman. And he realises he's going to have to look after himself a bit better and wash a bit more. <laughs> mm. And he decides he's going to have to start wiping his ass. <laughs> and there's a bit where you, you sort of... In Cashel's head, he's thinking, well, most men are just comfortable to leave their shirts d- between their buttocks and put up with the stains. And it's, a, it's one of those observations you don't get in many books because they would just not ignore that side of things. But are you, do you find yourself in full flow and then suddenly having to go, oh, fuck, how do they wipe their ass? And then you have to Google, how did people in 1840 wipe their ass? No, it's, it's more like I found out how people wipe their asses in 1840 and decide to put it in the novel. Because you're doing, wow. you're doing all this research and reading, uh, you know, reading about, you know, uh, all sorts of like street lighting in early 19th century London or, or road transport uh, between Oxford and London and of course you have to chuck out 95% if not 99% of the 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 facts you find out otherwise the book the fiction becomes overburdened so what you're looking for is that one detail that kind of resonates through the book and does a lot of work for you um, and uh, in the in, because Cashel's life is a long one from 1799 to 1882, the world had changed by the time he's an old man. You know he's going from um, you know tinder a tinder box to to light a candle and a chamber pot under the bed to to have a pee to um, electric light and flushing toilets to name but two of the modern conveniences available to him. And so I wanted to also show how the 19th century was a period of vast change. Almost like you know our lives moving from analog to di- the digital world, um, you know the the kind of communication revolution that we've all experienced was experienced by people who lived in the nineteenth century because it, when you posted a letter in eighteen twenty, you had to pay the postage to the not the person who received it, uh, and also you had no idea when it would get there. It took nine months to get for a letter to get from India to England, for example, and nine months to get back. So correspondence was kind of limited, and um, it's similarly, you know, from that kind of postal delay. By the time Cashel was an old man in the eighteen. There was uh, telegraphs and telegrams. You could c- communicate almost like emails. You know, um, in London in the 1860s, there were five or six postal deliveries a day. So you could write to somebody in the morning, say, meet you at the pub at four o'clock. They could write back and say, actually, I'll meet you there at five o'clock. And these exchanges of letters would all have been delivered to the various houses. It's quite ast- quite astonishing. And these are the sort of facts that in a way bring the past alive. And that's what you're looking for as a kind of magpie looking for the 
the bright, you know, nugget of information among, amongst all the ore you've mined, and using that as the as the as the the detail that brings the past, you know, vividly to life. You hope. Yeah, it would have been very different if uh, Sherlock Holmes had got one of those red notes saying, "Sorry, we missed you." Yes, that's and right. He's, he's <laughs> that's queuing up at his local sorting that's office. That's right. Sod it. Yeah. Closes at midday. Yeah, yeah. I'll just go to prep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we've taken a, a, an enormous but fascinating um, tangent from your spirit choices. So what are you going for, Will? Well, c- kind of boring. I've got to have vodka in there. And, you know, how many brands of vodka uh, are there out there on the market? And the one I tend to buy the most is is uh, good old Swedish absolute. No Russian vodka for me. Um, so the, the, so we need some absolute vodka in the But, the, but the, you also have to have whiskey. Um, and the, this is a whiskey I, funny enough, I associate with France. It's hugely popular in France. Maybe not so well known here. It's J&B blend. Oh, J&B is so good. It's a very pale whiskey. It's, uh, um, it's not a dark. And, and it reminds me of... Um, uh, the Speyside malts, which are my favourite ones, not the West Coast malts. And I, I went to school near the River Spey, and we were all we were taken routinely once a term to uh, a, a distillery uh, to look at the process. So I've I have this curious nostalgia for Speyside malts, but the J and B uh, blend uh, is remarkably like a good uh, Speyside malt. So that would be my other other choice of of uh, liquor you're right in that i think j&b is quite popular elsewhere yes i'm i'm not a whiskey drinker but i do have a very fond memory of passing a bottle of j&b around a, a tent in <laughs> at, at uh, the green man festival in 2004 rob we were listening to um fortet and there's oh, right. a photo yeah, of our friend that. sam yeah. with it and I remember yeah. thinking it was very, it's a very drinkable whiskey. Yes, it's very, it's called, in France, they call it your know, Gibet. Gibet. I always thought it was an American whiskey. It's a blended scotch, Yes, it's, right? it's just, J and B stands for Justerinian Brooks, which is a, a kind of wine merchant in uh, St. James's, I think. And it says their own blend with, I think they got, uh, I don't know how they made it, but it's very popular in France. And uh, that's where, when I feel like a little... Uh, dram. <laughs> that's what I. That's my dram of choice. You know. I think sometimes people confuse it with Jim Beam, Rob. Yeah. Because Jim Beam is a type of bourbon. Yeah. And and is Speyside Speyside whiskies are the are they the kind of peaty ones? No, they're the the, the West Coast ones are the peaty iodine ones, and uh, the the Speysides are usually much clearer. And I think easier to drink actually. They're the more, the more kind floral of, ones. Yeah. Right? Um, right, you yeah. know. Um, Abelau, Krigeliki, there are umpteen of them, um, but uh, uh, the, they have a completely different taste from the Isla, you know, West Coast uh, malts. I do like both, I have to say. I do I do like a Laphroaig. It's like smelling a bonfire, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah. it's, not, it's very, very divisive. Some people can't stand Laphroaig. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. It's horses for courses, you know. What is what do you feel like? Um, but there's no doubt that the that those paler uh, malts and 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 gibet uh, are very very easy to to consume. <laughs> also, it's nice to have a whiskey that you can mix without feeling guilty. Yes, because yes. A, a, a gibet would mix very well with coke or yes or, or yes. whatever you like to put in it or tonic, but. You wouldn't want to do that with a really nice Islay single malt. Well, it's time to head into the leather-bound section of the Moon Underwater. And this evening, the Moon Underwater has actually bound the entire library in leather. All of the um, the shelves, the tables and, and chairs are in leather. And it's up to Robin to decide what enters at the Moon Underwater pub library this evening. <laughs> Yes, thanks, John. In the in the pub library, well, I thought I'd read an extract from the Romantic, because there's a brilliant bit where Cashel moves to America, and with his trusty kind of uh, friend and confidant, I guess Batman as well. Yeah, yeah, Ignatz, who's from Bohemia, which is kind of, I guess, well, is it like former? Is it like Austria? Czech, Czech Republic. I, Czech yeah, Republic. Yes. yes. Yeah. 
So, uh, so they decide to start brewing beer when they're out in America. So this is a, a lovely description of that. Cashel had brought two crystal rummers down from the house, clear glass, as Ignatz had requested. He turned the spigot and filled the glasses. There was a modest head of foam, but what struck Cashel, used to porter stout and ale, was the colour of the beer. It was golden. He held the glass up to the light, more complex than golden, like clear honey infused with lemon sunlight, the essence of rich, transparent, light amber, gently carbonated, bubbles rising. Well, it certainly looks beautiful, Cashel said. Good health, Ignatz. Prost. They both drank big draughts of the beer. It was cold from the cave, slightly sour, yet with a real sharp taste of hops. It was like no beer Cashel had ever tasted. Good God, he said, this is delicious, wonderful, ambrosia, the apotheosis of a beer, Ignatz. Congratulations. Ignatz smiled and closed his eyes, his delight and pride very obvious. I told you, Mr. Ross, I told you we could brew something wonderful here. But what is this? Is this bohemian beer? Pilsner, we call it. Lager, a German word. It means to store. Das Bier wird gelagert. It takes longer than ale or porter to be ready, and it has to be cold, so it ferments from the bottom, not from the top like other beers. That's why we need the cave and the ice. The conditions are perfect. The hops, the water, the barley, the cold cave. But wait until people taste this, Kasia was thinking. They won't want their watery ale anymore. Genau, he nodded emphatically. I prophesied this to you, Mr. Ross. So you did, Ignatz. So you damn well did. I take my hat off to you. He doffed an invisible hat. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> yes. Well, I have to admit, when I read that section, I did pour myself a beer. <laughs> yeah. Of a, very, of a very similar hue to the beer they brew. But that's another great thing about, you know, the, we're talking about bringing the 19th century to life. The idea that this lager, which we all take for granted now, We'll see it was would have been seen as this very new different drink yes and and uh, I, I claim that this lager that Ignatz and had brewed which is called Rossbrau was the first commercially sold lager in the United <laughs> States so, <laughs> yes, believe that if you if you will but I guess would it, is it like kind of was it kind of bud, budvar your uh, yes or it's like um it's like uh, yeah the original budweiser which was a, a Czech beer and it was it was only developed I th- you know here's my research coming in um it was only really developed in the uh, I think 1820s the early 1820s when this this type of beer was was created and became very popular I mean I know nothing about brewing beer <laughs> so I had to find out and uh, but I wanted Cashel to be when he went to America in in the 1830s and 1840s I wanted him to be successful there to to you know become quite rich and I was thinking what could he do and I don't and I think I've was reading a book by William Cobbett, who the great English writer of the countryside, and uh, and Cobbett was a great expert for home brewing long before it became you know it's everybody's favourite hobby. And I thought, I know, I'll get Cashel can create a beer and and become a successful brewer for a short while. And so off I went on my research path and and discovered that lager had just been invented. And uh, so. He, that's why he invents this lager because the conditions of the farm he has and the, the kind of water and the the ability to store the 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 kegs of the uh, of the beer in a cold conditions you know sort of almost chilled like a fridge um, because of the ice that he can store in this this cave allow him to brew this perfect golden beer and for a while he's he's doing extremely well until fate catches up with him <laughs> one of the really interesting things and it's a small point but ice is quite important because cashel has this lake which is unusually clear on his land and when it freezes he sells the ice and it's sort of very high quality ice and i think one of the i i would put my hand up say one of the great inventions of the modern age is refrigeration but back then ice was literally the ice you got from the natural world but he ships the ice and it lasts for months is is that i mean obviously it's true but that's extraordinary it's, it's it was known as the frozen water trade and people made millions of pounds uh or dollars because those 
harsh winters in in Canada and uh, New England, uh, lakes froze to you know six feet of ice, and people saw or developed ways of of cutting the ice into huge blocks, of insulating them, um, and you know, they're shipping them to India or shipping them to Brazil or the Caribbean, let alone New York or Miami. And uh, because, there was, because there was no refrigeration, if you wanted your drink chilled, you had to have an ice house of some kind. So again, it's one of these, how do you bring the 19th century alive? How do you cool your, how did they cool their drinks? And uh, so the whole sort of frozen water trade aspect that Cashel gets involved in, uh, which of course, as soon as uh, towards the end of the century, refrigeration was developed and was making ice better than anybody could cut ice from frozen lakes. Um, it was it was fascinating to think about. You know, if you had a a glass of champagne in a in a London club in eighteen forty, um, how did how did you make the champagne cool? You put a block of ice in that has been cut from some lake in you know Massachusetts uh, but had been kept cold and kept uh, and stored in a way that uh, you know the the ice didn't melt it was quite astonishing the, that whole trade and it has it's a, it's a, an industry probably only lasted 40 or 50 years and then disappeared forever I remember watching a documentary about uh, is it the Cape Cape of Good Hope South Africa or is it Cape Horn Cape of Good Hope. Cape of Good Hope. When they worked out how to get round it, uh, peppercorns became more valuable than gold for weight because they could they could get them from India and ship them round. And pepper was such high demand in in England at the time that these people made the equivalent of tens of millions of pounds just bringing peppercorns back. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 very. This guy, the guy who made the fortune, was called an American guy called Henry Tudor, who realised he could ship it to Bombay or to Calcutta, to Rio de Janeiro, wherever. Maybe a third of it melted en route, but you still had a lot of ice to sell. Put it in an ice house, you know, um, frozen water, and that's cheap, cheapest kind of natural product you can imagine, and made a fortune. Well, we head from the library to the jukebox because here in the Moon Underwater we have a jukebox that's it's got infinite slots for uh, CDs and vinyl. Uh, we're not digital yet and we're not going to be. Uh, but we ask every guest to pick the album they would most like to hear when they walk into their dream pub. So, Will, what's it going to be for you? Well, it's actually an album by uh, somebody I know. He's uh, he's Spanish now, but he was originally from uh, Uruguay. And his name is Jorge Drexler. And Jorge Drexler is the Paul Simon of South America and Spain. And uh, he's a brilliant singer-songwriter, melodist. Um, and he has he's produced about 10 or a dozen albums. Um, he, he occasionally performs in London, and I was lucky enough, to, I've been lucky enough to get to know, know him. Um, and he has an album called 12 Seconds of Obscurity, Doce Secundos de Oscuridad, um, which is, I think, possibly his best album. Um, has maybe 10 absolutely wonderful songs. You know, in that, you know, Lennon McCartney, um, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell mode. You have the, you know, they're intelligent. He sings in Spanish, but the the he's a he is a brilliant melodist. And so, I love uh, world music. Um, I was thinking of an uh, an African album I could have chosen, but I think Jorge, who's uh, still recording and uh, actually even more famous uh, than he was when I first started listening to him, is is a a genuine you know songwriting genius and there aren't many of them around and uh, this album is uh, is a very good example of his 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 massive and particular gift Jorge Drexler 12 seconds of obscurity is now on the moon underwater pub jukebox uh, but you have one remaining choice, Will, just to remind everyone, so far in your dream pub, you have Newcastle Brown Ale, Cronenberg 1664, Eveningland Pinot Noir La Sauce and Craggy Range Sauvignon Blanc. You also have Absolute Vodka and J&B Whiskey. But what's your wildcard choice? 
Well, actually, it's something I've discovered fairly recently, which is, and you know, I'm way behind the the, the trend in the sense that um, rum has become a kind of connoisseur's drink. And when you think of, you know, you'd have a Bacardi and Coke, um, it's sort of almost ridiculous. Uh, but the, I discovered that rum from the Philippines is exceptionally nice. And I was trying to remember this rum. I, could, I drank it in France, in fact. I've, I bought a bottle of it. But there is a very, very good Philippines rum, you know, aged for seven years, etc., etc., called Don Papa. And so that would be my wild card. Uh, uh, kind of, you know, it's the sort of... Macallan's whiskey of Philippines rum, you know, and uh, it's it is uh, you know you don't mix it with anything. You just have a little snifter of it, and uh, it's absolutely delicious. That high end, uh, you know, uh, rum that's been. I think there are about as many rums available as there are gins now. So it's one of these drinks that's been rediscovered. But there used to be three brands, and now there are now there are seventy five. You know, so. Uh, Don Papa would be my choice. I have to say the bottle looks absolutely delightful. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's the other thing. They do have lovely bottles, you know. Oh, man, yes. I mean, were I still in my rum days, I would be ordering this right now. It looks <laughs> fantastic. In my rum days. Oh, maybe I might restart the rum days. Yeah, just have the odd tiny little glass of it at the end of the evening <laughs> oh there's so many different types i know it's, it's, it's astonishing it's absolutely it's, it's a it's like you know there's there were three brands of gin now now you you, you go into a pub and you there's more gins than whiskies available yeah. you know, it's quite astonishing mm. they've got sherry cask mascara sevillana rye cask port cask yes port exactly. cask quintessential edition Don Papa and Don Papa 10 and Rare Cask. Oh, my God. Oh, God. It must be quite stressful starting up a new spirits company. We think we've got to have 10 iterations of our spirits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, before we find out your dream pub companion, I think we should, we haven't really spoken about the, the pubs of your life. Um, you said that you live within 200 yards of four pubs, but what sort of pub are you creating and what sort of pubs have influenced your decision well it's funny because i i used to go to pubs a lot when i was at university in glasgow and um the pubs you know it's just normal pub life um but the extraordinary thing that changed everything as i as i see you're vaping away john is that is the smoking ban in pubs because i'm a non-smoker and so you went out to the pub for e for an evening and you passively smoked 20 cigarettes not only that you you smelt as if you'd been working in some sort of cigarette factory for the next two days when that when that ban the greatest thing tony blair ever did uh that but when that ban came about pubs opened up to the non-smoker uh and uh so i started going back to them again um and but i the three pubs I went to in Glasgow were quite famous pubs in the West End, and one in the centre of the city. They're all gone now. One was called the Pewter Pot. It's a, a 1950s pub uh, that closed in 2014. That's where that was close to my flat, so I went there almost every night. Um, there was another one called the Three in One, which was three pubs in one building. Oh, um, and, and, <laughs> oh how gone. did that work, Will? That, that, well, it depended if you wanted a, a rowdy room or a smaller room or one where there was, you know, it's, it's uh, almost like the snug and the saloon, you know, that old division that you used to get in, in pubs. And another one, which was very cool and trendy, was called the Muscular Arms. Uh, and, Ooh, that was, muscular. <laughs> and that was in the city centre. And anybody who knew Glasgow in the 70s and the 80s would remember the Muscular Arms because they had a man on the door. So you wouldn't get in if you weren't deemed the right sort of customer so it was a it was a the old velvet rope on a on a on a pub you know um and then you know when i went to oxford uh to do this unfinished uh, thesis I, I started going to all the oxford pubs um which you you two will be familiar with no doubt the turf tavern uh the, the famous king's arms of course the one i used to go to a lot which is very near my flat was called the rose and crown in south oh, south yes. parade that oh, was like a real God. old 90 small 
1950s pub, you know. Yeah. Um, North, North Parade. North, yeah, North, North Parade. You're yes. at North Parade, yeah. yeah. So they're, they're inverted. They're at North Parade, yeah. 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 And, um, it's in the south of the city. <laughs> that's right, me. yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> just to throw you off. And then, you know, I moved to London and, uh, you know, uh, London pubs are are everywhere. It's a it's a city blessed with pubs, and I always think I had a great friend who was a professor of history in in New York City University, and he came over here, and he he asked me to take him to pubs because he was frightened to go in them, <laughs> and I think it's that unfamiliarity because and you, we take them for granted, but if you put on kind of you know the lens of a foreign visitor. It, Pubs are amazing places, and you know, that you know, French people, Italian people, Spanish people who tend to work in British pubs um, must think they're, you know, better than cafes or better than bars. They are a good pub is an amazing institution. And uh, when I sometimes go into pubs and I see foreigners have come in, you know, with their guidebooks or whatever, they must be utterly entranced. But for us, it's just kind of bog standard, you know. So I think that we do tend to take them for granted. And actually, they are rather remarkable places. And, uh, uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to live near a, a really good pub or four good pubs, as I live near, um, then uh, you're spoilt for choice. And it's uh, your mood takes you to one <laughs> and your you know, whatever whim or caprice is dominating your mind, you can find a pub to, to, to fit it. Did you ever go to in the kind of Soho scene, the Pillars of Hercules? Uh, yeah, the French House. Uh, I've been to all those pubs, yes, over the uh, over the years. Um, but uh, I think my London life, or the London life that maybe writers and actors, is more club driven. You know that the that the the the, cl- the clubs available in London, whether it's the Groucho Club or Soho House or all the other ones, that's where people tend to go to meet, and they're not like pubs, even though they have bars. Um, so I don't, I don't really go to pubs in in the centre of London, but I do pop into. I live in Chelsea, so I do pop into several of Chelsea's you know, excellent pubs from time to time. When you imagine your sort of dream pub, something you would just sort of stumble across and think, yes, this is me. What sort of pub are you seeing? Well, I'm seeing a kind of hybrid pub. I like that sort of country pub feel, you know, uh, stone floors, you know, dark, low, beamed ceilings, um, a real fire. But then I also like, uh, you know, if they've got a bottle of Dom Papa on the the, the shelf, you know. So it's a kind of mix of... uh, a, a sort of sophisticated city pub with a kind of solid rural version, um, if such a thing can be imagined. I mean, there are pubs in London that do seem uh, throwback country pubs, but there's a, a, a pub I go to uh, near us, which is it's very light. It's got clear glass windows. And because I'm a sort of day, I go to pubs in the day rather than the evening, I sort of have this strange vision of a of a pub with clear glass windows shining a translucent light over the flagstones and uh, the, 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 the log fire that's crackling in the hearth. Uh, and But you can get uh, a choice of six rosés and, uh, and uh, you know, excellent Filipino wine, uh, rum. So, uh, so it's that. So that's what, uh, and, you know, various other things. The th- the, nothing annoys me more about going to a pub at midday and hearing American stadium rock playing, you know, uh, so you know, no Bon Jovi or, or, Aeros, or Aerosmith, um, but uh, and, and actually pubs are, you know, they're quieter and often, you know, I don't mind music in pubs, but I don't, just don't like it too too, too loud where it becomes the, the third person in your conversation. Mm. Oh, what an excellent way of putting it. The music should never be the third person in your conversation. That's so true. That's right. Yes. Yes. As you're hearing, you know, guns and roses (laughs) bellowing out as you're trying to chat to somebody. Well, we leave the Johnny Come Fly Be Nightlies behind now because we must find out uh, Will Boyd's dream pub companion. And as someone who has placed many of his characters amongst the great and good of the literary and art world, I cannot wait to hear who he chooses. If you would like to hear this choice, then do head to moonunderpod.com 
and click through to the Patreon link where you can support this pub. Not only will you get the bonus choice, you'll also get a bonus podcast behind the cellar door, advance warning and access to uh, live show tickets, and an unedited ad-free episode. Uh, So for those of you who have, with respect, decided against that, and that's absolutely fine, we respect your decision, Um, we'll see you back in a second. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're barred. Anyway, we return now. And you have missed an absolute belter if you haven't uh, subscribed on Patreon. Robin was very, very impressed uh, with Will's choice of Dream Pub Companion and a great chat we had, and, uh, and about some pretty top-shelf stuff, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's 18 certificate. Actually, it's not, but it's, it's 15, because we're making reference to stuff that's probably actually beyond 18. Is there a 21 certificate? There, there, there should be uh, for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, Will... We have really enjoyed your company. It's been so kind of you to give us your time. Uh, we've got two small matters of admin left. Uh, first off, what what would you like to bar from your dream pub? Well, I think I would like to bar uh, American stadium rock, you know, hard rock. Really? Uh, because... You know, it has its place, but it's but you know, thrash guitars and um, and I think it's because I've been annoyed by being in a pub and the music has been all wrong for the time of day. Mm. And you go, you say, is there any way you could turn this down? And they say we can't do anything about it. It's on a loop that the management install. Um, so that I think that's what I would. Uh, uh, that, uh, not that I've got anything particularly against Aerosmith or kiss or guns and roses but you know it's, it's there's a there's a time for them in a pub and it certainly isn't at lunchtime so that's what i would i think i would ban that kind of you know uh, sc- screaming uh, american stadium hard rock from my pub and we'd have cool jazz or you know cool bossa nova yes. you know something in the background you know well there's something about walking into a, a di- like a dive bar in new york and that's exactly what you want to hear Yes, exactly. And it yes. Fits. It's it's all yeah. it's all about I, I, I went to a pub in Edinburgh that it was the Blue Blazer actually. Such a great pub. And there were a group of local uh I think they were playing ukuleles. It was like a local ukulele club. And and they were also playing rock music at the same time. Yeah, right. And I oh, said right. to them I said to the guy at the bar, Can we turn the music off? Because and he was like, no, 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 the manager uh, says we always have to keep the music on. And I was like, but do you not hear the the mad dissonance between this ukulele orchestra and, and the indie music you're playing? Yeah. yeah. And it was just so insane not to go, yeah, of course I'll turn this music off. It's not like the manager's going to sack me 
But no, they kept it on. You couldn't constant. You couldn't even keep a thought in your head. Yeah, no, it's maddening, maddening. Yeah. Uh, well, a good thing to bar, I think. Yes. Maybe if it opens from sort of maybe past eleven o'clock. Hurry up, please. It's time. Finally, before we name this pub, we need to recap your choices. You've got Newcastle Brown Ale, Cronenberg, uh, sixteen sixty four. Pinot Noir, Evening Land, La Source, and Craggy Range Sauvignon Blanc. You've got Absolute Vodka, J&B Whiskey, or Gibe, as they Gibe. call it. <laughs> and it's a pub where clear glass shines a light over the flagstones, but with access to six rosés and Filipino <laughs> rum. That is crucial. <laughs> We've got uh, Jorge Drexler on the jukebox. There's no hard rock. And we also have Don Papa Rum, a Filipino brand. What are we going to call this fine establishment, Will? Well, I'm going to call it after a pub I invented in a short story I wrote called Notebook Number no. 9, where this sort of failed film director goes to, to, to scribble down ideas. And this, it's a pub which I called The Flaming Terrapin. And uh, actually, it's taken from a book of poems by a South African poet of the sort of 20s and 30s called uh, Roy Campbell, who seems a thoroughly unpleasant right wing fascistic racist. But he he did write this one long poem called The Flaming Terrapin and named his book. It sounds like a good pub name, you know, and uh, and there's a great line in in The Flaming Terrapin, which where he's where Roy Campbell says, life is a dusty corridor door shut at both ends and I sort of think well yeah I can sort of see how if you were a disappointed man you might think that but uh, so so my pub would be called the flaming terrapin uh, uh, and it does have a fictional life anyway but not in tribute to the uh, right-wing awful racist no no just it's just a just a very unusual name in fact the poem is really weird because you can't quite figure out where the flaming terrapin applies you know but it's a it is a somehow arresting Mm. adjective and noun you know so uh that uh, i think it's we could become a destination pub you know let's go let's go to the terrapin you know <laughs> i always associate terrapins with the, the buildings we used to have the little prefab buildings at school not the animal oh right you know, yes to... somebody set it on fire yes yeah <laughs> oh, i'm thinking of, yeah but the anyway that, i don't know wh- where that came from in in roy campbell's imagination but i i purloined it for this pub i invented and uh uh it's uh so yeah let's let's go to the terrapin guys <laughs> well will thank you so much for joining us here at the moon underwater uh, we have really enjoyed your company and your stories and also your book the romantic so i implore people uh to grab a copy and also look look back through will's back catalogue because it's an extraordinary range of novels and an extraordinary range of stories that you've told uh, over your career and hopefully many many more to come so will the flaming terrapin is now yours uh, to take with you wherever you need it most uh, and within it memories of the pewter pot the three in one and the muscular arms yeah exactly <laughs> so thank, do take thank, care thank you so much both of you it's a great pleasure thank you thank you bye bye